welcome. It's a real pleasure to be visiting with you at Liberty Church Amsterdam today. And uh, we're carrying on in a series from First Thessalonians where we're looking at this ancient text and considering what things it has to say to us today. And today we're actually focusing in on one question, and that's uh, can we receive Scripture as the Word of God in our day and age? Can we receive Scripture as the Word of God? So I'm going to read to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 to 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you both suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord, the Lord Jesus and the prophets." and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Some very, very strong words there that we're going to consider as we look at this, but something that's very rich for us today in this text as well. First, obviously, we need to look at the background. Who's Paul writing to and why is he doing this? He's writing to the church at Thessalonica, which is a church which is mentioned elsewhere in the book of Acts. It's uh, in the New Testament book of Acts. And we see Paul visiting there with his friends on part of his missionary journeys as he takes uh, the gospel to different places. And it's there in all its tumultuous detail in, uh, in the book of Acts. I mean, I don't know if you've heard the expression before, trouble seems to follow her wherever she goes or trouble seems to follow him. But this is definitely true with the Apostle Paul. And is that because he's a troublemaker? I don't think it is. I don't think he's looking for trouble. He's not looking for a fight, but he always seems to get one. And uh, Thessalonica is one of those places where the guns are blazing. Uh, it says in, in Acts 17, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying... This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And really that's the powder keg, that last line. This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. I think he probably would have had a hearing with everyone right up until that point when he's there in the synagogue, these uh, three Sabbath days that he's there explaining to them the history of the Jewish people, the history of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob speaking to uh, this people through prophets and through actions. And uh, he, he would have had everyone eating out the palm of his hand all the way through that. And when he gets to this point of saying the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the, all these things mean the same thing. Uh, th th this person was Jesus Christ. That's when he would have lost the hearing and that's when the gloves would have come off uh, for, for everyone who was uh, ready, to, ready to take his life, really. They were ready to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. But why is it so controversial for him to say Jesus is the Christ? Because to us, if someone says Jesus is the Christ, it's like saying Amsterdam is the capital or Brighton has a beach. You know, it's a really trivial thing. A lot of people think of uh, Christ as like Jesus' surname, just as I'm Tim Jones, we'd say he's Jesus Christ. But it's not his surname. His surname uh, would be derived from his, his family. Uh, Christ is actually a title. And it means anointed one, the one that God's chosen. 
God's chosen king, the one who he's sending as a rescuer. And all of these things that I'm saying are drawing upon the prophetic history of Israel. Israelites were expecting this one to come. This was the hope of the nation. They were expecting the Christ, who they called the Messiah. So when Paul says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, that's why it's such a raw nerve that's being hit. He's saying these holy messages which God has spoken to we Jews all point to one person and to the coming of the Messiah. And that person is Jesus. Ah, so this is why he gets such heat. It says in Acts 17 that some people heard the message gladly and uh, received the word that he was bringing, the word being the message. It said that others just didn't want anything to do with it and others still just drove him out of that place. So the the church gets planted, but it almost gets planted like a bomb gets planted in a crater. It just gets, it gets thrown in like a grenade. And then Paul is off and out of there almost before there's time to even think. So the Thessalonians to whom he's writing are those who did receive the word as the very word of God. The word of Paul as he brought it. He said, ah, oh, you realized. And this is why he's giving thanks in our text in chapter two. He's saying, one of the great things about you guys is that you realized it wasn't just me speaking. It was God. It was God himself, the living God, and the one who has uh, been from eternity past, but has dealt with our nation and has uh, prophetically grown us up like a child in front of him. And um, that very same God is the one who is speaking through me right now to you. He, he's praising God because they received the word of God as what it really was, and not just as the word of men. So Paul is right in the thick of it. Trouble is following him, but for good reason. It's godly trouble that's following him. So what can we learn from this? I think I want to launch right into, um, having set a little bit of a background, I want to launch into what can we get out of this? What can we learn? There's a, there's a whole catalog of scripture which has been uh, generated because of Paul and the whole of the New Testament was generated out of the, the foment of this time. And we have that in front of us. And the question comes to us as well. What do, how do we receive scripture? Do we receive it as something interesting, as something historical? And, uh, you know, it surely is those things. Uh, as something which can, you know, give us morality and give us a bit of insight into how to get through our days. Or do we receive it as something even greater? Or do we receive it first and foremost as the word of God? The very word of God being spoken to us. And I'm going to make some recommendations that uh, there's, there's a lot at stake here as to whether we do or don't receive it as the word of God. Even as Christians, you know, you might be a Christian. You're not, you don't become a Christian because of how, uh, how pure or thorough your understanding of the word of God is. You become a Christian because God apprehends you and draws you to himself. So it can become a bit of a journey in, uh, into how you receive the word of God. But I want to say to you, there is a lot at stake there. There's a lot of good stuff in it for you. If you start to learn and walk in receiving God's word as God's word, God's speech as his now word to us. So under two headings, I'm going to speak to us today, trust and allegiance. I want to say that trust is what's at stake. Trust is a relational word. It's not, it's not just trusting in a book. We're trusting that the book is the deposit of the word of God. And we're trusting that it's a living and active word of God, as it says. And the allegiance 
that if you trust something or if you trust someone, it births an allegiance, it births a set of priorities which you're going to walk in line with, that you're going to uh, build your, your own life upon. You may be as you become a parent or something, you'll build a family life on it. Or as you become influential in some other way, as a, a leader in, in business or in society, you're going to build things according to how uh, your allegiances work. So trust and allegiance, these are the things I want to say. And for both of these, they're not, they're not just heavy subjects. They are subjects full of promise for you today. You're, the more that you trust, the more that you tr solidly trust. You can't drum up trust as well. I don't know if you noticed that. You can't manufacture it. You either build, build trust and have trust, or you don't. It's, it's something which is uh, accumulated by testimony, by actions, leaving an impression on you. And so it's a dynamic process is what I'm saying there. And allegiances, those, again, are built on top of a foundation of trust. If you feel, I trust this, I trust the truth of this, I trust the personalities behind it, I, I, I can stake my claim on this. So let me just first start by uh, extolling to you for a bit the virtues of trust and uh, the great content that's in, um, in trusting someone in a relationship. I think this is the, the place to start, isn't it? Because we all know what it's like. Uh, to, to have trust and to lose trust and how hard trust is to rebuild when it's taken away as well. I think, um, you, you know, I, I know this will fill your mind with vivid examples straight away of people that you have trusted and um, happy memories, I hope, and maybe some bitter memories along with it. But let me say that if you're in a relationship, which is a relationship of real trust, there's so many things that go along with it which, are, which shine light into every corner of your life. So if you trust someone, if you're in a relationship of trust, it puts you in a place of peace. That's the first thing that you, that you find, oh, I, I don't have to defend all the time. I, I don't have to keep uh, telling myself that this thing's right. I don't have to keep trying to persuade myself uh, that, that the relationship's good. When there's trust, there's life and there's peace. Um, conversely, when there isn't trust, it's, it's an insecure place. You feel like I, I'm always having to try and persuade even my own heart that this is a good relationship. I'm trying to persuade myself that it's worth pursuing. And I'm trying to persuade myself that this person is worthy of trust, that I can actually build upon them. Similarly, if you, if you trust in a relationship, you, you're at peace with the world beyond that relationship. You don't feel like uh, you, you have to be defensive against people who believe differently from you. You feel hospitable because you're secure. You're at peace in your relationship. You're trusting in your relationship. And because of that, you don't feel like you, you're singing for yourself, but you're having to explain it all the time. You're having to explain yourself. And when someone who trusts differently or believes differently comes along, you don't feel that you need to do snap reactions to, to them. You feel, actually, no, I can extend hospitality here. I can talk about the goodness of the trust that I've found and the relationship that I live in. But I don't have to crush other people. I can listen to people, hear them out, hear their story and bring the truth that I'm living with into the midst of that, rather than just trying to clobber someone with, with something that you're not really sure about yourself. So trust brings about security. A, a good example of um, this whole dynamic, and I think that these, these things are uh, always best fleshed out with a story, 
it's, it's hard when someone's just talking in abstract terms like this. So let me just say my own life, just quite a personal story, that um, when I first went off to university, and I was, uh, I think, 19 years old, so it's a little while ago, but um, my mum, my who is a Christian and, uh, and a keen letter writer, wrote a letter to me. Now, I had become a Christian just shortly before coming to university. It had been a little while. And uh, my mum wrote me this letter. And it was, it was very encouraging. She was saying, oh, I hope you're doing, away, uh, doing well. It's your first time away from home and you're living in another city. And, you know, I'm praying for you and all this stuff. And then she got to the point of it. And she said, uh, have you thought about actually giving the full-blown Christianity thing a whirl. And I can tell you, I was insulted. Well, I never. Me? I, I, I thought, you know, I, I'm a Christian. You know, I've, I've told people that I follow Jesus. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm going on with my life as a Christian. But if you'd asked me, actually, and even if I was being honest with myself in the cold light of day, I... Uh, I really wasn't living it very much. I was just trying to, I, I, I knew what had happened to me was real. As I say, you don't, you don't come to Christ by the quality of your believing or the, or the depth of your knowledge or anything like that. You come to Christ because Christ comes to you. You come because the Father uh, comes into your life and you realize, oh, that God's real. And um, I don't really know very much about him, but I do know that he's come and apprehended me. So I knew that much, but I wasn't very happy about it. And I was trying, none of my friends were um, Christian believers or anything like that. And um, they knew I was, and that someone comes to uh, just sort of look on it as a bit of an oddity of my life, you know, just um, something that Tim's into. And uh, so these words, you know, will you take this faith, the full-blown faith, seriously? They, they kind of hit home. It did make a, it made a bit of an impact on me. And um, it annoyed me first. Like, words like that tend to annoy you first, and then you start mulling it over and start walking into it. And I, I was just trying to get through life alive, basically. I wasn't expecting much out of Christianity. I was like, it's true. It's, it seems that God's done this thing, but I'm now expecting to live quite a restrained life and one which is uh, devoid of the things which I enjoyed and the pleasures which I pursued. Um, and that's, that's going to be, be my lot now, and, and hopefully heaven will be nice. You know? <laughs> um, I couldn't have known then that my mum was quite right, and I was actually being robbed. I was being robbed uh, by my own fears, by my own prejudices, really. And fear prejudice, hurt, um, people, you know, all of these things can stand in the way of you actually trusting the goodness of God's word and of actually digging deep into it. You, can, you might think to yourself, well, if I, if I got really serious about the Bible, I would turn into a bigot. Or if I got really serious about the word of God or the Bible as the word of God, then I would be restricted in some way. I want to just commend to you that there's more life there in the word for you. There's more, like, like, like people used to say in the gold rush, there's gold in them, their hills. There's more gold in the scripture for you. There's stuff to be mined out. And God is so willing to come and meet you in his word, to minister it to you and to build a trust relationship through that mechanism. There's a lot more for you. And even if you've gone on for many years, you're not going to deny that to me. You're going to say, yeah, that's what I've found to be true. And I believe that there's even more that I've laid hold of something of God, but he's laid hold of me for even greater things. And he wants to uh, go even deeper and give me more of a confidence and a trust in him that gives me more of a peace in life. 
So hopefully I've threaded that needle a little bit there and commended the relational aspect to you. I, I, I want to just offer something a little bit more left-brained now, which is um, actually an argument for the authority of the Word of God. This little book here is uh, called Unbreakable, and it's by my friend Andrew Wilson. And it has a subtitle, What the Son of God Said About the Word of God. And that is uh, the key to his argument. People argue for the authority of Scripture in different ways, um, but this is one of my favorite ways. And I just want to distill something of a brief argument that Andrew offers. Uh, he has a blog post on this as well on um, the Think Theology website, which is worth checking out. And um, he lays down 12 steps of an argument based on Jesus' life, uh, his death, his resurrection, specifically the resurrection, and um, the reality of that. And he builds a doctrine of Scripture out of it, or a doctrine of the authority of Scripture. So I'm going to just relay it to you in, in a short space. And please, if this isn't your sort of thing, don't tune out. Do try and track with this. There are three main elements to this argument. Resurrection, miracles, and meaning. And the resurrection bit is really simple. It's basically that all scholars agree, there's wide consensus, that there are two things historically to be explained about the resurrection. Number one, that there was an empty tomb. I think so far so uncontroversial. There was an empty tomb. Jesus was put in a tomb and then there was an empty tomb. That fact is accepted by everyone. Uh, you, you know, you might find real cranks on, on the outer reaches who say that that isn't the case. But I'm not talking just about Christian academics. I'm talking about people in general agree that the tomb was empty. Okay? The second thing is they agree that the disciples of Jesus had post-resurrection experiences of him that they testify to. They said that they saw him resurrected. They said that there was quite a length of time you know they point to it in the new testament as well they say look there was a long you know not years and years but definitely weeks where you're talking about jesus being resurrected and present with the believers and they really believed this they believed it so much that they went to their deaths for it that they actually went you know you wouldn't you would recant a false belief before it meant your painful death painful public death in many cases. These, these people believed this so much. And both of those things need uh, some kind of explanation. So two basic facts about the resurrection, an empty tomb, disciples who had resurrection experiences. Now, miracles. Basically, if miracles exist, or if it's possible that miracles exist, you don't even have to believe miracles exist. You have to just believe it's possible that miracles exist. Then, the best explanation is the biblical explanation that Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead. And that's why there's an empty tomb. And that's why the apostles, the disciples had these experiences. It's because Jesus did actually come to them. So building on this, if, there's, if it's possible that a creator God exists, only if it's possible that a creator God exists. You're not even having to say a creator God does exist. I, of course, believe that that is the case. But you just have to agree that it's possible that a creator God exists. Then that implies that miracles could possibly exist. Okay. That's, that's fairly simple. Uh, it's not, you're not having to argue anything stronger than it's possible that a creator God exists. And um, it's very, very hard to prove that that's not the case because you have to prove that it is impossible that a creator God exists to do that. And that's so far eluded absolutely everyone and I think will always be the case. So it's possible that a creator God exists, so it's possible that miracles exist. 
And because it's possible that miracles exist, and it only has to be possible, therefore Jesus' resurrection, bodily resurrection, is the best explanation for the empty tomb and the disciples' experience. Okay, that's the nuts and bolts in place. The resurrection, miracles, and miracle, uh, miracle as the best explanation for the phenomena that's agreed upon, the historical phenomena of the resurrection, appearances, and the empty tomb. The third move, and this is really where it gets to the scripture. You might be thinking up to this point, how does that argument get us to the authority of scripture? Well, here we go. So the meaning of it, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, if this, if this really did happen, the best explanation for that is that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who Jesus proclaimed, has actually vindicated and exalted Jesus. He's, he's rubber-stamped Jesus' own claims. And Jesus' own claims were to come representing the Father, to be the second person of the Trinity, to be the Son of God, God the Son, uh, come into the midst of history. And if he's been raised from the dead, if he's conquered death and he, he, he's uh, been resurrected, then the, this means that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God has vindicated him, has said, yes, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, which he says in public in the Gospels. So if that creator God accepts Jesus and says, this is, this is my mouthpiece, this is my image who's been put amongst you, we should accept Jesus' view of how the creator God of Israel works in the world. And this is Jesus' view of how the creator God works in the world. Three things that he sees of great authority, uh, that Jesus always says hold authority. The Hebrew scriptures, so the Old Testament as we'd call it, he says that those are authoritative. He takes them as totally authoritative. He says, uh, when he's quoting them, he says, God said this. And he, he lends credence to even some of the hardest parts of that Old Testament. He says, this is the word of God. Okay, so that's Jesus' opinion of the Old Testament. Jesus' opinion of his own teachings and his own actions is also that they are authoritative. He says, uh, you've heard it said, but I tell you. So he views his word as the word of God. And he views the word of his delegates, the disciples, as the word of God. He delegates authority to them to go and speak and to write and to say the very words of God. And uh, so... We have to then say, what does the Bible consist of? And you might have got there already. The Bible consists of the Hebrew scriptures, which Jesus commended. It consists of the words of Jesus that Jesus, uh, that Jesus spoke, and it's written down uh, by the disciples. So the New Testament and the Old Testament consists of these things that Jesus, who has been resurrected and publicly vindicated by the creator God, uh, commends. So there is a Christocentric, Christ-centered uh, argument for the authority of scripture and I don't just offer that to, to you who are who like geeking out on these things as you might have been able to tell that I do it's not just a minority interest that it's not just being philosophically clever it's to deepen the trust that you have in the God of scripture and in the scripture as God's the scripture as God's very words so Jesus who is the word of God incarnate, commends the word of God written. And my whole point is that your relationship of trust gets deepened even now. God has spoken, and as you grow in this trust, God will speak, and you will grow in excitement that God will speak to you. 
And that will matter a whole lot for this next point, which is about allegiance. You're going to want to give your life in a whole new way, aren't you? If you, can, if you feel like this is rock solid, that I can trust the Bible, that even uh, under the onslaughts of criticism uh, from, from different persons and from academic criticism and, and whatever other type of criticism there is, the Bible has been offered fearlessly by God in public into the midst, uh, you know, even as Jesus says of his disciples, I send you out like sheep among wolves. He's not sending them saying, uh, saying I'm sending you as sheep among wolves just so you'll be slaughtered. He's sending, I'm sending you out into the midst of those who will be opposed to you, but you will overcome. And the same is true of the word of God that is sent out into the midst of the world, not fearfully. We're not there saying to people, oh, please believe this, please. You know, just if only you could kiss your brain goodbye, you'll be fine. Not at all. We're there saying this is a record of the living God stooping down like a, like a parent stoops down to look into the eyes of a toddler to encourage them to tell them truth in the in language that they can understand, to build them up. This is God doing that to humanity. The living God, the unchanging God, coming and speaking into the changeability and the turmoil and the mess of our own lives, of our own societies. He's doing it, friends, and he's doing it today. He's doing it through his word, and it starts small, it starts like, like the kingdom starts as a tiny mustard seed in you. And you might think, oh, this is just, just him building my life. And suddenly you realize that he's building your life for the purpose of building cities, that he's building your life for the purpose of changing the church, of building that bride that he loves, as it says in the book of Revelation. So allegiance, as I say, trust in the word of God transforms you. Conversely, not trusting in the word of God leaves you in stasis. If I'd stayed in that place and my mum hadn't written her rude letter to me telling me, come on, you know, go for it. Well, test the waters. See if this stuff's real. Try, try the full-blooded Christianity. If I hadn't taken notice of that, if I hadn't have uh, walked into everything that God had for me, then I just I'd shudder to think of what I would have missed out. I would have missed out so much of life and I would have turned up uh, in front of the throne of God at the end of my life and he would say, there was more. There was more. There's, I had so much more for you. Oh Lord, I want to walk into it now and I'm jealous for you to get that experience as well. I'm jealous for you to walk into all that God has for you. Friend, he has more for you. He has more for you. And if you open that word of God and you say, speak to me, Lord, and you do that consistently, just day on day or whatever your pattern, just, just going, not, not just with religion, not just with pattern, but with expectation that I'm going to be built by the living God. He will meet you, friend, and he will grow you and your allegiance to him will, will grow and grow. And it won't look ugly. It won't look stressful. It won't look like you're just trying to hammer people into believing something which is really true but not very pleasant. It will actually just ooze out of you. The life of God. That he's a... Uh, think about how uh, that woman with the issue of blood goes up to Jesus and just says, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. That's a picture of what the life of God in a person looks like. I don't know if you've come across Christian uh, believers who've gone on many years 
and trusted him and built up this kind of record of trust and this relational uh, peace that I'm talking about. But it's an absolute joy to come across people like that. It's a joy to come across people uh, for whom there's whatever gets thrown at them by life, tragedies uh, and, and circumstances beyond their control, crises. It's not that they'd suddenly become oblivious to those things, but it's that they walk through them knowing that they've got a good God and that they live deeply with that reality. So back to that Acts 17 account. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise, and rise from the dead. And he said to them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now note what Jesus says when he's walking with the two on the road to Emmaus. He's keen to cement in their minds that he, this is his identity. In Luke 24, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And it's like he takes the mask off at that point and says to them, look, this is me. I am the one who was predicted by the prophets all the way through. And those guys weren't received well. As you read in the parable of the tenants from Jesus in Mark 12, he talks about uh, God as like a vineyard owner who sends different messengers to see how the vineyard is going when, when he's gone away. And uh, those, each one of them, the prophets, is mistreated, is beaten, is, uh, some of them are killed. And finally, the vineyard owner says, look, I'll send my own son. I'll send him uh, to them and surely they won't mistreat him. And it says they killed him. I can remember being uh, sat in the car with my sister when she was about 18 years old and I was driving her somewhere. Uh, and I'd, I'd been a Christian a few years and I'd, I'd you know, I was... Uh, I don't know if I was zealous or just annoying, but I subjected her to my uh, Bible on cassette, so you can tell how long ago this was. Um, and we listened to this parable as we were going somewhere, and I remember her just falling very quiet and saying to me, Tim, is, is it actually uh, the Lord Jesus there who, uh, who's that son who's been sent, who's killed? And the Lord says, uh, the Father says of the Lord, surely they won't mistreat my son that they kill the son. And to be honest, that was actually instrumental in her coming to Christ. She realized that God had spoken in many ways and through different people, as it says in Hebrews. And uh, in these last days, he's spoken conclusively through his son, the Lord Jesus, who commends the written word of scripture to us. And we must say that of this text, the, the vitriol that you see from Paul, uh, and we, we read it here, it's shocking. It says, uh, you know, you, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and displeased God and oppose all mankind. We've got to see there that he's not just uh, putting forth an anti-Semitic manifesto. He himself was a Jew who said that he could, he wished that he was cut off from Jesus if, uh, if his countrymen would come to know Jesus as their Messiah. No, he, he's not anti-Semitic at all, but he is urgent that the gospel goes out. He's urgent that the gospel continues to be preached. And we need to be uh, both repentant for the way that the church is implicated in anti-Semitism over the course of history. That's horrendous and as abhorrent. But we also need to be completely zealous about the gospel as good news and embodying that, realizing that the word of God uh, contains it. So let me just close by saying, 
we need to form a culture of the word in our churches. Liberty Church needs to be a church which is completely steeped in the culture of the word. That starts with you. That starts with you realizing that God will give you more. That as you go and you mine the gold out of that scripture, you're going to be blessed and he's going to bless you to be a blessing. First to the church and then to the city and then to society. It goes out in concentric rings. And you being blessed is, you know, you feel like that's, that's good enough on its own. But don't, don't limit the plan of God for what, what he would do with you. As he grows you in confidence and in trust, realize that God wants to be heard. He wants to be heard by you. He wants to be trusted by you. And he wants to be heard in your church, in the midst of your prayer meetings, that scriptures ring out and that you get confident at encouraging one another in the day to day. He wants a scripture to be bouncing off the walls of every single meeting that you have as he speaks through his living word. Will you do that? Will you commit even today? to just step forward wherever you're at. Maybe you're not even a believer at this point. Can I say to you, friend, God wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to you and he wants you to embark on this journey of trust. And wherever you are, maybe it's decades in, he wants to reinvigorate you with a passion for his word. Trust him, trust in the relationship, see the church built and let God be heard.